Lord's Day to worship. <clears throat> and a beautiful day. And again, thankful for some moisture we had this week. We have no pressing announcements. Uh, we do uh, know we're going to meet for a presbytery, which is at the end of the month. The last Tuesday of every September is when we have a presbytery meeting in the fall. And it's going to be in Volga, South Dakota, which is about an 11-hour drive, the other side of the state, the east side of the state. There's smile. You guys know where Volga is? <laughs> There's a college there, yeah. You know where it is too, huh? Yeah. It's a nice little town, quite a little town. It's a college town, apparently. So uh, we have an OPC church there. They have their own building, which is very nice. A lot of the uh, churches out in the Dakotas have their own building. They're old buildings, but they're good buildings. We have the call to worship, where God calls us and the world to come bow before him. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It's by our hearts and heads a sound of preparation for worship. Let us stand and sing hymn 333, 
thank you, God Almighty, that you gave us salvation and deliverance from sin, the world, and the devil. And we thank you, God, that we will live with you in eternity forevermore in bliss and praise of your name. We ask, God, that you be with us, especially here in this worship time together. In your presence, Lord, that your spirit would be with us to draw, draw us nigh unto you by the blood of Christ Jesus, to cast aside all cares and concerns. We pray these things in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning. It is now and ever shall be Worlds without end Amen Amen You may be seated. We have the responsive reading inside the bulletin. Psalm 63, I'll read the bold face. O God, you are my God, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. So here the psalmist rejoices in God and seeks for him as we all ought to seek because we know his loving kindness, his covenantal faithfulness is better than life. Let us pray. We do gather before you, God, because you call us, but also because we wish to be in your presence Presence you have promised in your word, Lord, especially in public worship and praise of your name, to hear your word and to grow thereby. We ask and pray, God, that we would continue to rejoice in you and your salvation as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in your justice, in your mercy, in your goodness, God Almighty, in all that you do, both from creation to providence, the things of life, and to redemption, the saving of our souls. We magnify your name, God. We stand with you. We stand before you. We bow our hearts, God. And we wish to always love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Help us to that end, we pray, so that we may fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, against sin, wherever it may be, especially within our own hearts. Our God and Savior, we indeed do sin. And we struggle with that as saints, God. We, Lord, feel the contradiction in our breasts that we are simultaneously righteous and unrighteous, God. We are righteous in Christ Jesus, but of ourselves, Lord, we still sin and struggle against sin. But we are thankful and praise you, God, for your spirit, as we will hear this afternoon, Lord, that indwells within us so that we can become more like Jesus and fight against sin. Help us, we pray, as your people, to take care of our body as well as our soul, to be thankful, God, for the many provisions you've given us in life. They have a place to live, a place to work, uh, clothes on our back, and shoes on our feet, and food for our belly. We're grateful, God, for the many things you've given us, that we would be wise in using them to take care of this temple of the Holy Spirit, Lord, both with our diet and exercise and the things that we need to do to take care of it, Lord. We pray that we continue to have good access to health care as best we can, Lord, in understanding our situation, however unique it may be. We pray for those with chronic ailments upon their body, Lord. It seems that it will never go away. We ask that they would persevere and that we would pray for them as best we know their situation. They would get the help they need and they would find a good doctor a doctor who has their best interest at heart and not just money. We pray and ask God Almighty that you would help us to that end, that we would be wise with the resources that we have so that we can take care of ourselves, our family and their body as well, our children, Lord, and those around us as best we can. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us in our communities and our neighborhoods, Lord, that we would be good neighbors and good witnesses of Christ Jesus, even if we don't always speak of these matters, Lord, but we would certainly by our deeds Show them that we take seriously your law and your word. Help us, we pray, God, to have opportunities and to be aware of opportunities to speak to them and to pray for them, certainly, God. We ask, Lord, that we would continue to have good neighbors and good neighborhoods. We certainly know some of us have sliding neighborhoods, Lord. We pray for their protection, God, from thieves and robbers and criminals of various and sundry sorts, God, that you would be with them and watch over them and help them, Lord, to deal with the situation as best they can. We ask, God, that we continue to have good neighborhoods and good protection wherever we find ourselves, Lord, and that we pray for good neighbors as well, that they would get along with us, we along with them. And we ask, God, that we would have good and faithful laws to preserve such neighborhoods and communities, Lord, in cities as well, and certainly for our nation. We ask and pray, God, for our lives to glorify you in all that we do and to learn more what it means to glorify your name, to learn more of your word and of your law, as we're going over in Sunday school class. We ask to that end, Lord, that we would continue to take Christian education seriously in our lives. Again, Lord, as best we are able, given our situations and our limitations, Lord, to learn a little more, to read a little more, to pray a little more, perhaps, or at least a better frequency therein, to understand the world we find ourselves in as well, God, that we would see it in the light of your word and of your law, Help us, we pray, to instruct our children, our children's children, Lord, that we would store up within our hearts and in our libraries uh, good instruction for them and for their children, God, our grandchildren, that they may know and see that the Lord is good and understand who Christ Jesus is to instruct them in righteousness and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and the Holy Spirit and the Father, Lord, and the glorious Trinity and of sin and of salvation, of redemption of the church, of the means of grace, and all these things, God, in your word, but also <clears throat> including your law, which is in your word and in our hearts and across this world, Lord, as you created the world in such a way, morally, uh, that there is a cause and effect, and wickedness will bring about heartache in people's lives. May our children see these things and understand and flee from them. 
Help us, we pray, to instruct them in righteousness and your law and your gospel, especially, Lord, and they would receive such instruction into their hearts. Be within them, protect them, we pray. Help us, Lord, to instruct them as one another, to know that we are called to a lifelong instruction as disciples or pupils, Lord, as it could be translated there in the New Testament, God, those who follow the great teacher, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Help us to that, to that end, Lord, to continue to learn, to desire to learn, and to use the means, causes, and occasions to that end as best we can, we pray. Help us to learn, and not only learn, but take that instruction to apply it to our lives, that we, God, can be more obedient and useful for your kingdom and for one another. We pray to that end as well, Lord, for our growth and sanctification, our growth in obedience and thought, word, and deed, and to fight against sin, uh, to resist temptation, and to arrange our lives such that, God, we can optimize obedience and holiness and minimize temptation and sin as best we can in our families, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are at work, Lord, in our little section of life, God, our slice of life that we find ourselves to the extent that we have the ability and authority and power, God. May we exercise to that end to your glory. And for our good, help us, Lord, to be more like Jesus and to grow in fruit of the Spirit as a church, God, we pray. For your glorious name's sake, amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Thank you, God Almighty, for the many and various blessings and gifts you've given us, God, the things that are ultimately yours. We pray, God, that they would be used, these tithes and offerings, uh, to be magnified for your namesake and to be used wisely for the expansion of your kingdom, we pray. Amen. Let us sing Psalm 89b while we are standing. Psalm 89b. First five stanzas, 89B.
Apostles' Creed, the green sheet inside your bulletin, peeking out there. Reading of the Apostles' Creed together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come, the judge, the living, and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and a life everlasting. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Verses 29 to 39. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife... Mother, wife's mother, lay sick with fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak, because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And as he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons, let us pray. Hear God, we read, the ministry of Christ through the pen of Mark by the Holy Spirit, inspiring him, that what we read is true and faithful and just, that we have an expansion of Christ's ministry. He is there in Capernaum still, and that he is desirous to move beyond Capernaum. And meanwhile, Lord, he continues to heal and to preach. In particular, God, we see that he is healing and preaching among his own people, even those close to him and his family. Help us, we pray, God, to be encouraged by this, that Jesus Christ continues to heal the soul, Lord, and promises to heal our body at the great resurrection. Amen. Last time we were in Mark, as you recall, we read that Jesus started his ministry there in the prior verses, 21 and following, with the ministry of healing and teaching, the two great themes in his life throughout the Gospels. These two things and actions characterize his ministry, In this text here, we read of the expansion of his ministry and his zeal to spread the gospel to the people of God. 
and more miracles to reinforce that teaching, to highlight again his credentials as not just another prophet, but the great prophet of all prophets prophesied of old and the Messiah himself. So let's look more carefully in the text here to learn from Christ's ministry for his people and his love for us and how the church can, to some extent, certainly mimic and copy the great acts of Jesus in his ministry, the ministry of preaching especially. The first point, Jesus' healing of the multitudes, or his healing multiplies, it grows, there's more opportunities for him to be good to his own people. And we have here, verse 29, now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, right? again, Mark has a, a more... Uh, graphic or uh, energetic pace in his writing style here. He goes from one event to another. As soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew, entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with fever. They told him about her at once. So here we have the healing of the mother-in-law of the apostle. And the disciples are following him here, Simon and Andrew, James and John, those who were called by Jesus to be with him, to be the core group, as we know, of the disciples with a capital D, or eventually the apostles, as they are called. They followed Jesus wherever he went. He was their rabbi or master and teacher, and they were there to learn from him. He was special, they knew. Something about him as over and against all the other rabbis and teachers of the day and era. And they learned from him in various sundry ways, of course, by his teaching, but also by his actions, what he does and does not do. From the miracles, certainly, from his interactions, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, and as we know from the life of Jesus and other Gospels, the apostles are there listening while he interacts with people, and they ask, why are you interacting, why are you being nice to the little children here, or to the women, or something like that, or to sinners, perhaps. And, of course, they also asked questions that they listened about his preaching and teaching, and they were confused at times, but they were there to learn by what he said and by what he did as well. Jesus was their instructor, and he's instructing them here by his actions, and not always his words, the actions of healing, as we know, that are there for the sake of his ministry and ultimately of his preaching. And, of course, like the disciples, although we don't have to move and travel across country and the like, praise be to God, we too in our following of Jesus learn from him in the Gospels of Jesus Christ here, Gospel of Christ, and these letters of who he is and how we are called to learn by him. Jesus' ministry, also we see in this text, is not just public, but private. Not everyone in the mom is here at the house, although it's his wife's mom that's there with him. It's a smaller group here, and Jesus is ready and able to be and heal those both in public and in private ministry as well. And it's practical. It's where the people are in life, in their homes here, in the local communities, as we know, on the hillside, when he has the Sermon on the Mount and the like. And he's there often. We read in the Gospels, there's food involved, perhaps some wine, and certainly fellowship. And we do the same thing today. In other words, Jesus is taking nothing special as the God-man in his ministry, other than the miracles. That's special, obviously. But everything else around that is the same. Mundane, normal, ordinary, 
And that's how it's always been and always shall be until Christ returns. And so in our call to imitate Christ Jesus, we imitate the ordinary. We have fellowship with one another. Uh, we are with one another at various places and communities and our homes. And so we take those opportunities as Christ took those opportunities to speak of Christ, to speak of the things that we need to speak of in our various callings in life. Now, of course, something else is going on here, something that stands out if you have a Roman Catholic friend. This for science from class, I'd ask you to raise your hand how many people have Roman Catholic friends. I'm sure some of you had or at least had at one time, or it's in your family, your mother, your uncle, and the like. They may not know, but the Roman Catholic Church doesn't like the fact that the Bible presents Peter as one who is married. Don't forget, the priests of the Roman Catholic Church are not to be married. They're super holy somehow. And so, we read in this passage that he's married. His wife's mother is there sick. How do you have a mother-in-law unless you had marriage? Elsewhere we read in 1 Corinthians 9.5, Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a wife? as the other apostles and the brethren of our Lord and Cephas, which is another name for Peter, with a rock. In fact, the Protestants argued, marriage was the norm. It's to be expected. And again, that makes sense, given, as I highlighted a little bit here, that Christ did the ordinary thing. The only extraordinary thing, of course, he did is he never got married. It's not really extraordinary in the sense of miracle or not miracle, because there's still people today who aren't able to get married or don't get married. That's always been the case historically. But again, on average, the norm, when everything's hunky-dory, as it were, we're not in war, for example, don't expect to get too many marriages during war, men and women will marry. And they ought to marry if they're able. 1 Timothy 3.2, Paul writes this way, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. He just There it is, let's just take it for granted. Marriage, and of course children, if possible, that come from that marriage. Rabbis were often married. Nothing special going on there. Because marriage was practical, it was practical experience, and it showed the maturity of the leader. That he can handle these things. And that's part of Paul's argument in First Timothy, right? If he can't control his household, what do you think he can control the household of God? That argument makes no sense unless Paul expects, again, ordinarily, that there be ministry... The ministry men are married. This also shows Christ's concern and care for the family of the disciples. He's there, and he takes care of them, and he heals them. We know he takes care of his family, because he says on the cross to John, the beloved apostle, take care of my mother. He doesn't say, well, you know, this new age of the New Testament era, all family relations and natural relationships between men and women are, are done away with. There is no, neither male nor female to misuse that passage in Galatians, which clearly is about salvation, that men are more easily saved than women, or slaves more easily slave, saved than the rich. We're all equally saved. There's no difference in Christ and salvation and justification. The healing here is full. Kind of interesting here. Uh, Matthew Henry helped um, highlight this point. 
I use a number of commentaries. Uh, Matthew Henry is a standard one, partly because I recommend I commend him to you that if you want a commentary, somebody to make you think differently about a text, to open your eyes to something. I'm not saying I agree with everything of Matthew Henry, but he's the go-to, and I recommend him to you. And so I'm reading what you're reading, <clears throat> although I read more. He points out the healing here is not, of course, not only immediate. But thorough. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, verse 31, and immediately the fever left her and she served them. I don't know about you, but after I've had a fever and been sick for several days, I am weak as a baby. I have no energy. And here she is like, okay, I'm ready. Let's get some chow. I'll serve it up for you. So the healing went above and beyond just eradication of the sickness that's gone, but empowering and strengthening her back to normalcy. And certainly Christ does that in the healing of our souls. That it's not simply and only that he forgives us all unrighteousness and releases us from the bondage of Satan, but he empowers us by his spirit and illuminates us by the spirit of truth, as we'll read about this afternoon, so that we are stronger than we were before. Now, I know we're not in heaven, so you're like, I'm still way pastor. No, but you're no longer outside the covenant, you're no longer unsaved, but you are saved and have the Spirit and have and can and continue to change and grow. God strengthens you for the things that you need in your life so that you can serve in his kingdom and serve in your family and your church. Now, after the healing, of course, that evening when the sun had set, we're here again at Capernaum. It hasn't changed. We're still there. And he's Finishing up the day, the sun had set. They brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. This is the end of the Sabbath day. It was a busy Sabbath day, I'll remind you. First he taught at the synagogue, and then he healed a possessed man at the synagogue, and now he heals another person at the end of the day. Although in traditional Judaic understanding of things, it's from sun up to sundown for uh, the Sabbath, so the Sabbath would be Friday night to Saturday night. So this would be technically the end of the Sabbath day, perhaps reflecting their, their view that we can't really heal anybody. We know later on Jesus heals people right in the middle of the Sabbath day. He did it here, in fact, with the demon possession, but apparently didn't catch on. They, these people brought these sick to them at the end or the next beginning of the next day for them to heal. And there were more people. At evening they came, and they brought all who were sick, that is, in the surrounding area there that he was at in Capernaum, and all who were demon-possessed. They had a little collection. And they were concerned. This is a good thing. Concerned about their brothers and sisters there in the Old Testament era. The sick and demon-possessed, verse 34 and he healed many who were sick with various diseases. So he's highlighting the breath of Jesus' power and might. And cast out many demons, not just one or two. Not with just fasting and prayer like he told the disciples, right? You have to do extra things. I don't. I can speak it, and it is so. As the God-man, the great Messiah. Demon possession, of course, being the worst of the ailments. I'd rather have a serious sickness than to be possessed by a demon, obviously. And so, in bringing these two descriptions, various diseases, the breadth and width of Christ's power, and then the quality of that power that even the demons obey. And they shut up when he speaks to them. Demon possession being the worst, of course, the healing 
of the demons is a double blessing. It's freedom from the bodily, physical torture and pain, to be sure. As we have other descriptions more detailed than this of demon possession, they lash their bodies and they would hurt them. And then, of course, freedom of the soul from the demon itself. It's a double blessing that Christ is giving. We'll talk a little bit about that a little later because the emphasis upon healing uh, goes beyond the physical there with the demonic possession to the soul. Christ is more concerned about the soul in many ways, although he's not unconcerned about the body because, as we know, he heals the body of his people and he promises us the resurrection. And it's the whole city there gathered together in verse 33 at the door and the growth and popularity of Jesus Christ from the local area of Capernaum. But again, I'll remind you about Capernaum, which is where his parents eventually resided later when he was growing up there. So it's more or less his old neighborhood. They rejected the gospel en masse. Not all of them, of course, but enough of them that Jesus warns them they would not submit to his teaching. They would not submit to Jesus. Apparently, they love the miracles. We have the same kind of problem today, and it's always been a problem amongst mankind. In foreign mission work, they had problems overseas. I don't remember. I think it was in Korea, in which uh, the churches would offer the gospel and food to the poor. So many poor people over there. And the OPC. And they found out real fast they had rice Christianity, where they were quick to become Christians because they wanted the food. They're quick to come to Jesus because they wanted the miracles. This is great stuff. But his teaching? Eh, don't know about that. That's what's going to happen eventually here. And apparently even here, even though Jesus heals them, he does leave, as we read in the next few verses. Now, it's interesting here, of course, at the end of verse 34, he did not allow the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew him. Well, like, Everyone else knew him. This is Jesus of Nazareth. We, of course we know who he is. No, no, no. Obviously they're saying he knew him in a special way. That is, he is the Son of God, the Holy One, like we read in the prior verses, in verse 24. Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It was clear to the demons. He's not just another man. But he is special. The Anointed One, the Messiah. Jesus' time was not ready. That's why. We read that elsewhere in the Gospels, where the Pharisees were coming after him, and it says he blended or melted into the crowd, because his time was not yet come. He would just walk away. It's not, this is not it. In his earthly ministry as a man, Jesus used what? The means of providence. He wasn't presumptuous. He wasn't like, yeah, when, when my time comes, my time comes. Or rather, he took the means and occasions that we all would take, common sense practicality like blending into a crowd. You, you don't see me, I'm out of here. Or here, shut up, I don't want to hear about it. You won't say a word, because now's not the time, because my Father works through providence and cause and effect. And when that time comes, you will spread the word so far and so broad that the Pharisees will become jealous of me, and then come after me. This is a cause and effect universe. And God's behind it. And in it, and through it, and the end of it. The goal of it. And uh, I like to remind us of this fact, and remind myself of this fact, again, growing up in the circles I grew up in, where we like to ignore, although we often 
did not ignore it because we had businesses and life and everything else. We would ignore in those Christian circles, with our lip anyways, the means God has given us through providence. Common sense, I like to say. Jesus exercised it a lot more than we realized. All the time, I would argue. Until, of course, he knew with through special revelation as the man, the man, um, Christ Jesus, what to do and not to do. Isaiah 61.1 brings us to the healing connection to Jesus' ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. As you recall, John the baptizer asked is this really Jesus later on in his doubt because now he's in prison he's wondering what's going on. And Jesus quotes this passage saying, remind him of Isaiah. This is, this is me. I am fulfilling this prophecy. And part of the prophecy is the healing of his people. Not just the teaching of glad tidings. And thus the emphasis upon healing in the gospel is to show that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of old, not just for the sake of doing good and wonderful works. We'll talk a little bit about that, like, right now. Healing of God's people. It's something overlooked by many people, Christians, that Christ's ministry is virtually exclusively what? To the Jews. The liberals like to go to the Gospels and elsewhere, as we know. Those who deny, the, not only deny the inspiration of the Bible, but deny key components of the Gospel. And point out all the good works he does. Say, see, this is, this is exactly what's wrong with you conservatives and Christians and whatnot in society. You don't follow Jesus. And, of course, a good rebuttal is, if we pay attention to the text, is, no, you don't follow Jesus, because who did Jesus heal? The people in the church or the covenant church of old called Israel. That's who he healed. That's who he fed. That's who he was there for. He excluded the Gentiles. <laughs> there were, I mean, there's lots of Gentiles in Israel at the time. Don't think it's just one big happy family of Jews. There are plenty of strangers there. He used the term technically in the Old Testament, the stranger who's with you, right? Among them, they were occupied by Rome. Jesus did not go to them. Now, he ran across some of them, like the centurion, and he gave them the truth, but he's not, like, rushing out there. He's like, I'm going to go to the rest of Capernaum and other places around Israel. Go to the next towns, not outside of Israel, but unto Israel. He says, I come to the house of Israel. Jesus' love and compassion was exclusive, is the point. Because part of the problem with liberalism isn't liberalism per se as traditionally defined, and that's a good definition as far as it goes, but they tend to have a deeper rooter problem, rooted problem, that spreads through other domains that we wouldn't call liberal, which is they don't like exclusivity. They want everything across the board, wide and open, mostly for their own desires and power plays or whatever sins they have. Whereas the Bible is clear and natural law is clear and God's morality is clear, you don't have just open moral borders, which is what they usually want. God makes a division between the just and the unjust, the saved and the unsaved, and he gives double blessing to his people. 
we take care of the house of faith first. Do good to all men. Yes, Jesus, like I said, it came across his path. A couple of Gentiles we know in the stories of his, the gospel. He does good to them. He speaks the truth, even if he doesn't give them alms. Speaking the truth is doing good, don't forget. But that we do good to all men, especially the household of faith, as a pattern Jesus shows us. Especially with the truth of his word. Second point, Jesus' preaching spreads, verses 35 to 39. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Jesus prays. The Son of God prays. That is, he speaks to the Father above. As he who is both God and man, the nature of man, he, as we all need to, talk to our Father above and pray in accordance to his word. As a divine exemplar for us, reminding us of the importance of prayer, this takes some time throughout our lives and our days, not just our lives, our days, to pray, even if it's a short prayer. It reminds you of your need of God, and of course, we're commanded to, and God says he hears our prayers, and he uses our prayers, as only he can in his providence, to accomplish his will. And he used the prayers of his son, and he prayed before daylight. Why before daylight? Probably because of distractions. He went and departed to a solitary place, the text reminds us, and he prayed, and they were searching for him, and they found him, and they said, everyone is looking for you. And you're like, okay, well, that makes sense. This is why he, he used, again, common sense, providential means of accomplishing an end, which is I need to pray before God, and there are too many people who want my attention. They can wait, and I will pray. So it wasn't just the morning time, it was also the location. And you may have to pick a location in your house, the basement, the garage, I don't know, that's best conducive for your prayer. Or to read the Bible, or to meditate upon the truths of his word. The spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 38, but he said to them, let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Jesus wanted to spread the gospel amongst the church of old, to other Jews besides those near his home in his own neighborhood, to bring about miracles as well, as we know, for his people, to preach there also. He's going to do miracles, although the emphasis upon miracles fades through the Gospels, as it works, as, it, as of course the Gospels move historically, chronologically, more precisely, in and through the life of Jesus to the cross. The latter years, there are a lot less miracles recorded. They're mostly at the beginning years of his three-year ministry. Because the emphasis isn't the miracles as much, although they're emphasized early in the text for the sake of our sake, for the reader's sake of old, to again emphasize this is really the Messiah, the one that's been promised of old. But the message is what's important. What he has come to teach. And so Jesus highlights that even in his own language here. Let us... Let's go forth and leave Capernaum and go elsewhere that I may preach and teach the glad tidings of Isaiah 61 to my people. The preaching was central. The miracles, eventually, as we know, for many, many Jews meant nothing. And certainly they mean nothing unless they follow the message that the miracles were authenticating and pointing to. The miracles would not help them at all. 
except for their body and not their soul unless they receive the good news of Jesus Christ. And all the other teachings of our Lord and Savior. His doctrine was unique. The Old Testament prophets, they did miracles, but not so many and not the kind of quality miracles that he did. Of course, the greatest being being raised from the dead. And the teaching was not unique like Jesus. They pointed to Jesus. John the baptizer pointed to Christ. And Christ says, I am the one they're pointing to. I am the Lamb of God. He brought the words of life, the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the flesh. His words are spirit and they are life. We read in the Gospel of John. That's pretty unique, I'd say. So though he was a prophet, he was the greatest of all prophets of the capital P, as prophesied in Deuteronomy. He preached not like all the other ones, of course, but preached with authority and might, as I went over the last time in the prior verses. But of God and of himself, he spoke with the authority of the Messiah. And he said, I speak to you these truths. And he brought new light upon old truths of old. And he spoke of suffering and of dying and of raising from the dead, which was offensive to his audience, even to his own disciples who were confused, like Peter. God forbid, how can you do this? Can you say these things? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not speaking the truth, Peter. You're resisting my words and the revelation of the Holy Spirit. So his message certainly was unique and different because Jews going through the Old Testament prophecies apparently like to pick up on all the good stuff. Christ is reigning. Christ is ruling. The nations come to us and we're going to rule over the nations. This is great stuff. Jesus is like, no. Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. The most central and emphasized Old Testament passages. He was uncomely. He was coming to them as a sheep to the slaughter. He did not come with pomp and circumstance. And this offended the Jews who were so prideful of themselves. Who thought of themselves better than anyone else because we have Abraham as our father. And you goyim, you Gentile dogs, what are you compared to us? And Jesus, of course, smashed their pride with his message and his own life of suffering and dying. He preached in the synagogue again. Verse 39, he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Again, he emphasizes what? Casting out demons, one of the worst ailments, right? The greatest miracle you could have short of the resurrection. Now, I want to add a little more to the synagogues to get a better understanding of what's going on here historically and as you go through the other Gospels and you read them over your lifespan. The synagogues were common places. It's a get-together. The root word is used elsewhere to gather together um, soon. I guess there's no equivalent in English, but that's the idea of with. It's common among the Jews as a teaching and a worship center, specifically a teaching center more properly, because proper worship was what? In the temple. But these existed outside the temple. Before the time of Christ, they gave not just Torah instruction during the meetings, but they also had um, prayer and singing. And they also included in their Torah instruction two schools. They had a schooling system, the time of Jesus, where you had something we would call an elementary school and something else that perhaps would be loosely equivalent to a junior high. It would be age, the first school is the house of learning they called, excuse me, the house of reading, ages 6 to 10 or 5, 6 to 10. 
And then as the child was age 10 or upward, he could continue, but did not have to continue. And if he did continue, it would be, especially the boys, the house of learning. So these synagogues were not only places for the adults to learn, to have instruction, and Jesus took that opportunity to teach them, as we know Paul and the apostles did in the, in the Acts, book of Acts. But they also incorporated, by the time of Christ, various schools. They ran, their churches, they're equivalent to a church, ran schools. A lower school and an upper school. Because they took the education of their people so seriously. And they were in the midst of the Grecianization, I call it that, there's another technical term I forgot, right? We have the Grecian influence. The Greek empire grew, Rome took over Greek, but Rome was influenced by Grecian culture as well and the philosophy of Athens and everywhere else. So although Rome brought the administrative state and good roads, they depended a lot upon a lot of the working theories and thinking ways of the Greeks. And that influenced the Jews as they were scattered in their captivity. And they came back, as we know, in Nehemiah and Ezra. Many Jews still stayed behind. And they grew and were, in, by the time of Christ, they're there in Rome and they're there in southern Europe and elsewhere at this time. Even though they still had their land, of course, it was owned by the Romans. And so they were concerned, the old rabbis in the, before the New Testament era, about bad Greek influence upon their kids. And that's a good concern. And we have that concern today, although it's not Greek influence anymore. It's way beyond that. And they said, make schools, make Jewish schools to help the children know their tradition and know their Bible. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing to emulate of our forefathers, because the Jews of old, as you know, who were faithful and followed Jesus, the Messiah, are our spiritual forefathers. And so they had the house of learning and the house of reading. Paul, in all probability, went to these schools. We read the outcome of him going to the house of learning from age 10 upward because he sat at the feet of the famous rabbi Gamaliel, which meant he almost guaranteed went through the whole learning system because that was expected to meet a rabbi at the end of the, of the learning process. Now, before the, Paul, the, the fall, before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., when Christ died about 33 A.D., the Jews boasted of 480 synagogues, each of them having two schools. Brothers and sisters, Jerusalem at that time in 70 AD was not as big as Denver. They took education very seriously. And Jesus took that to his advantage, as Paul did as well. So the synagogues were not only educational centers for adults as well as children, they were social centers, of course. Wherever there were ten families or more, they would have a synagogue. That was the pattern. And the language here, of course, is as he was and he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, suggests to me that there were lots of synagogues there, because he's highlighting the fact uh, he doesn't list any other place. He doesn't say he went to the houses and homes of people, went to the synagogues, because that's the social place to go to. And they were prevalent, and they were easily accessible. And that's where you're guaranteed to find Jews who want to hear a message. And Jesus obliged them. And of course, what we wish to do and follow in that divine example, especially for the pastors and the churches, is to do the same thing, to find social places for pastors and evangelists, where people are there and want to listen, 
or you can at least get them to listen for a bit, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it seems to be more and more, unfortunately, because places are shut down and they're not going to let me have access to the gym and have large crowds of people or something. Social media is one place that's actually becomes, as it were, a digital or virtual public square. Christ's work expanded as we know and grew. Here in these verses, beginning in a small little house, and then at the door, all the whole city gathers for more healing. He gives more instruction, and he's not satisfied to stay there, but wants to grow and expand the kingdom of God for his people there in verse 38 and 39. So he preaches and he heals all throughout Israel as we continue to read through the Gospels. And now more instruction will come before us as we read the Gospels as well and more of Jesus' word. All this before he died and rose from the dead because it was important to him. And it should be important to us. This is part of his life that he gave for us to teach us and to encourage us that he is with us and with his people. And today his ministry of teaching and healing of the soul continues in faithful churches. Not the miracles. Don't expect miracles from me. But the saving of the soul and the instruction of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, continues his work. Pray for more such churches. Pray for the expansion of Christ's kingdom. And thank the Lord that he came. and He gave us signs of evidence of who he is, that we can have more faith and trust in him. Let us pray. We thank you, God above, for the gospel of Mark, where he highlights the miracles and the teaching of Christ and his love and desire to teach his people your truth. We're thankful, Lord, that the Spirit is given to us by Jesus Christ and continue that instruction through the church, we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing. 266. 266. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.